Game My name is Elgin Barrett, and Halloween, as you might expect, is my favourite time of year, a time when the spirits of the dead are closer than ever, although for some people, not quite close enough, as you'll hear. Buckle up for this one, it's quite a ride. The story is performed by Katie Cotterell, and entitled, A Gift for Halloween. Eleanor was the kind of person who made it her business to know everyone else's. But in the six months I had worked for her, I had never known her to be quite so nosy. She had been standing with her ear pressed against the old oak door for nearly half an hour. It was obvious that something rather strange was going on inside. Sometimes when I passed through the hallway, there was a woman's voice rising and falling in a kind of keening sob. Other times it was a man pleading in a tired, cracked, desperate way. And whenever I caught Eleanor's eye, she mouthed at me, I'll be with you in a moment. But she just couldn't drag herself away. On the way there, Eleanor had explained that the house was owned by one of her most loyal clients, a gentleman called Mr Morris Spurling. And to judge by the size of the place, he was one of her wealthiest too. It stood near the top of the hill in the pine woods to the west of the town with spectacular views over the rooftops and out to the sea beyond. Eleanor had done the catering for his gatherings for many years. Back in the day there had been birthday lunches, Christmas parties and midsummer picnics on the grand lawn at the back. But in recent years his social calendar had shrunk to just a single event. High tea on Halloween. It's a job that requires a degree of sensitivity, Eleanor had said as she drove. A degree of discretion, you understand? And she took her eyes off the road for a moment to check that I did. I nodded. I was one of the newer girls on the team, so it was nice to know that she felt I could be trusted. And a word of advice, Abby, she added. With Mr Spurling, it always pays to go the extra mile. His tips are never less than generous. And she turned again and gave me a knowing smile. Well, I reflected as I emerged from the kitchen with yet more plates, if anyone was going the extra mile today, it certainly wasn't Eleanor. She pointed to the door as I approached and then to her ear, and so I stopped next to her and listened. Come, boomed the woman's voice from within. Come! What on earth was going on in there, I wondered. I placed some perfectly triangular cucumber sandwiches on the tea trolley and whispered, Shall I brew the tea? Eleanor listened intently at the door for another moment. I could just make out the woman's voice now dripping with exhausted theatricality. I'm sorry, Morris. I am so sorry. Then Eleanor took a step back, checked her makeup in the hall mirror and said, Yes, you can do it now. When I got back with the large silver teapot on a tray, the door to the room was open and Eleanor was in conversation with a plainly dressed middle-aged woman. From what Eleanor had told me, I guessed this was Mrs Carslake, the carer who came in to look after Mr Spurling every day. I quite understand, Eleanor was saying. I can't stay on myself, but Abigail will be glad to help. That's very good of her, said Mrs Carslake. Then she stepped aside and gestured for us to enter. Eleanor led the way with the silver teapot while I trundled in her wake with the trolley. 
It was a large, high-ceilinged room with a log fire blazing. Its walls were panelled in the same dark oak as the door, and it was cosily furnished. Bookshelves, worn leather armchairs, and a few old oil paintings. This afternoon, however, much of the furniture had been pushed back against the walls to accommodate a large round table in the middle of the room, which was strewn with playing cards and pages torn from a notebook. The atmosphere in the room was one of resignation, depression, withdrawal, the overwhelming weariness that comes with defeat. Apart from Mrs Carslake, there were only three others. Far too few to consume the enormous tea we had prepared... A muscular young man in a tight T-shirt and jeans stood with his back to us, looking out of the window. Mrs Carslake's son, I guessed. I had seen him around the town on a few occasions. Slumped in a posture of utter exhaustion in a winged chair was a woman with carefully flicked-back silver hair and an extravagantly embroidered black jacket. That would be Mrs Beaufort from Eleanor's description. And most despondent of all was the man in the wheelchair in front of the fireplace, Morris Spurling himself. No luck today, then, asked Eleanor as she set out the crockery. It's not a question of luck, Mrs Beaufort said without opening her eyes. It is a matter of willpower, and I have failed. I am sorry I failed you, Morris, once again. She was close, though, said Mrs Carslake. We could all sense it. She was very, very close. Tea, Mr Spurling? asked Eleanor. Milk and one sugar, please, he said dejectedly. Eleanor raised her eyebrows to indicate I should pour. And as I took the cup and saucer over, I tried to get the measure of him. His face had a gaunt, wasted look, with a long, straight nose and dyed black hair, receding and slicked back from his temples. He was wrapped in a blue blazer that seemed several sizes too big for him and made his head seem disproportionately large for his body. There was something about him that made me feel rather uncomfortable. When they had all been served, I withdrew to a position next to the door as I had been trained to do, back straight, hands clasped in front of me, but alert for any empty plate, any cup that might need refilling. From where I stood, I had a good view of the table, and I realised that they weren't ordinary playing cards as I had first thought. The Ace of Wands, the Queen of Pentacles, the Fool. They were tarot cards. And it was then that I first realised that they must have been holding some kind of seance. Eleanor made her way around the four of them, smiling politely, exchanging a gracious word or two, and then she bobbed in Mr Spurling's direction and hurried over to me. Right, she whispered, I've got to go, so I'll leave you to it. But remember what I said, his tips are legendary, so keep him sweet. And she gave me a knowing wink. Mr Spurling's three guests all left not long afterwards, and I busied myself with clearing up. I had just finished stacking the dishwasher when he propelled his wheelchair into the kitchen. He was still sunk in gloom. Would you mind taking these upstairs for me, he said holding out a selection of objects. A petrol blue scarf, a pearl earring, a silver-plated cigarette lighter. The phrase personal effects came to my mind. Of course, Mr Spurling, I said. It's the bedroom at the top of the stairs, first door on the right. If you could just leave them on the bed. I'll do it right now. 
It was a room of soft, suffocating luxury, dominated by a large dressing table in the centre of a sweeping bay window. Perfume bottles, makeup and hairbrushes were arranged neatly in front of a triptych of mirrors. On either side were two large silver candelabra, each with three candles close to guttering. For a moment, I tried to imagine the kind of woman who might stand here, admiring her reflection and looking out over the twinkling lights of the town to the dark sea in the distance. Then I walked across the room and placed the objects I'd been given on the large oval bed. The wall above was completely covered in photographs. I squinted at them in the half-light. It was hard to see clearly, but they all seemed to be of the same person. An elfin-faced woman of medium height with a thick mane of dark hair. There she was, in a long, elegant dress, at a smart reception of some kind. In the next photo, she was outside a stable in a riding hat and jodhpurs. In the one next to that, she stood knee-deep in the sea in a swimsuit, with her head thrown back, roaring with laughter. And it was then that it occurred to me that this was not so much a bedroom as a shrine. I knew I shouldn't really hang about in there, but I was intrigued. I walked slowly around the room, trying to get a feel for it. The wall opposite the bed was fitted with floor-to-ceiling, mirror-fronted wardrobes. I thought I'd risk a peek inside. I slid back one of the doors and a light within came on, revealing a rail devoted entirely to winter coats. I ran my finger along them. There was a belted trench coat of soft cream leather, a striped cashmere poncho, a single-breasted duster coat with a faux fur trim, and the labels were impeccable. Max Mara, Missoni, Issy Miyake and so many of them. They must have cost thousands and thousands. And then I sensed someone behind me. I slid the wardrobe door shut and spun around. It was him, Mr Spurling. Oh, hell, now I was for it. It hadn't occurred to me he'd be able to come upstairs, not without assistance. There must be a lift. I'm, I'm sorry, I stammered, trying desperately to think of an excuse. That's quite all right, he said. They were Tesoras. I'm pleased someone's interested. Tesora? My wife. I see. Yes, my late wife. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. So was she the one... The one we were trying to contact? Yes. Yes, she was. This was awkward. I really wasn't sure what to say. What Eleanor would expect me to do. The candles flickered and we stared at one another. It was Mr Spurling who broke the silence. It is something we attempt at dusk every Halloween. Mrs Beaufort believes it to be the most propitious time of the year. The change in seasons, the onset of winter and so on. I don't know why, but something from my childhood suddenly came back to me and I said, well, it's the thin time, I suppose. I'm sorry? He looked up at me and tilted his head slightly. The thin time? It was what my grandmother used to say when I was little. 
she was Polish. I was so nervous that my thoughts now started to tumble out in a rush. On Halloween, we used to go to the cemetery, me and her, and we'd sit there by my grandfather's grave. She'd bring sandwiches and a flask of tea and she'd talk to him. You know, ask him questions, ask him how he was, that sort of thing. When I got a bit older, I stopped going, of course. I thought she was mad. But I remember that that was what she called it, the thin time. He looked at me thoughtfully and nodded. I'm sorry, I said. I felt horribly embarrassed. I don't know why I said all that. No need to apologise. None at all. The thin time. It's a nice way of putting it. Because it's true. It is an ancient belief that on this day, the veil between the worlds grows thinner. That the normal rules of space and time cease to apply. That the boundary between the living and the dead is blurred. That is what Mrs. Beaufort tells me, at least. He gave a quiet, resigned snort and shook his head. <laughs> Although sometimes I suspect she's just playing me for the fool I no doubt am. But what can I do? It is the last hope I have. He slumped back in his wheelchair again. Once again, I wasn't sure how to handle this. So I just wiped my hands on my pinafore and said, I'm ever so sorry. And I'm sorry about the wardrobe, too. I, I shouldn't have... That seemed to bring him back to life. No, as I say, that's quite all right. He wheeled himself over and opened the door that I had just closed. Try one on, if you like. Tazora would have been about your size, I would guess. No, I couldn't. Go on. A faint smile passed across his face. Please... Be my guest. There was something slightly creepy about this, but there was no harm in keeping on the right side of him. All right then, I said, running my eye along the rail. I chose a gorgeous fawn cashmere wrap coat with an oversized collar. He nodded approvingly. It was one of her favourites. I didn't put it on properly. I just hung it over my shoulders. It suits you rather well, I would say. He pulled the wardrobe door shut so I could see my reflection. And he was right. It did. You can borrow it if you like. Oh, no. But thank you. No. I mean it. It's not doing anyone any good in there. He looked up at me. It would give me pleasure. And then I saw he was fumbling with the wallet on his lap... He produced two notes and held them out. And this is to say thank you for all your hard work this afternoon. They were £50 notes. I don't think I'd ever seen one before. I took them. How could I refuse? You must promise, though, that you will make good use of the coat. I nodded, still stunned by his generosity. But promise me, too, that you will bring it back. Of course, Mr. Spurling, I said. I kept it far longer than I should. I knew that, but I had never owned an article of clothing quite like it. It was so artfully cut, the fabric so rich, 
the shade so subtle that it was impossible to put it on without feeling more poised, more elegant, even more intelligent. Because it wasn't just that it gave you confidence. It was as if it made you see the world in a different way. I felt magnetic when I wore it, as though its admirable qualities were mine too. Certainly I credit that coat with producing a change in me. It freed my imagination and allowed me to dream again. Dream as I had when I was a teenager. I started to think I might leave the shop work, the bartending, the waitressing behind, that I might get a proper job, as my parents called it, that I might actually try to make something of my life. It wasn't until several weeks after Christmas that Eleanor spoke to me about the coat. She said Mr Spurling had been on the phone wanting to know how I was and asking about it. She was shocked to learn how long I'd had it and offered to drive me up to the house that same afternoon. I couldn't very well object. She waited in the turning circle outside the front porch while I rang the doorbell, the coat folded over my arm. Mr Spurling answered the door himself. There's no need to stay he called to Eleanor. I'd like a few words with Abigail, if I may. I'll call a cab to take her back. I wasn't altogether happy about this, but Eleanor wasn't going to argue. When she had gone, Mr Spurling ushered me into the hallway and said, Would you mind taking it up to her room? I'll join you in just a few minutes. I climbed the stairs, wondering what it was he wanted to say. I noticed that he seemed somewhat less dejected than he had been the previous time. Eleanor tells me you've become rather attached to the coat, he said, as he wheeled himself into the room. She says you've worn it nearly every day. Yes, I, I suppose I have, I said. May I see you in it? It didn't seem an unreasonable request. I picked it up from the bed, put it on, and stood there rather awkwardly. You definitely have something of her about you, he said. Something of Tesora, I mean. It's your demeanour, the way you stand, perhaps. I was definitely starting to find this slightly uncomfortable. May I ask, in all the time you had the coat, did you ever think about Tesora? Did you ever wonder who she might have been? I thought for a moment. I suppose I must have from time to time. I would be surprised if you hadn't, he continued. It is one of the most remarkable features of our humanity, our ability to put ourselves in the position of someone else, to see the world through another's eyes. Wouldn't you agree? I suppose so, I said, not really understanding what he expected of me. And to put on a costume is to assume a role, isn't it? He continued. A small boy puts on a policeman's outfit and he imagines himself to be one. Well, doesn't he? Yes. So I can't believe you wore that coat for all those months and not once did you imagine yourself as her. You must have. And it makes me wonder, well... It makes me wonder whether something of her might have rubbed off on you. Oh, I don't think so, I said. Then perhaps you would indulge me for a moment. I just want to perform a little experiment. All I want you to do is to go over to the dressing table 
and tell me which of the hairbrushes you think was her favourite. There seemed no harm in going along with it. There were four of them arranged in a row. I chose a shiny black lacquer one with a motif of a prancing horse. It looked sort of Russian. Show me, said Mr Spurling. I turned and held it out to him. Spot on, he said. Look at the way you hold it. What do you mean? Well, you're not left-handed, are you? No. Tazora was, though. I looked down. The brush was in my left hand, it was true. Interesting, don't you think? But I wasn't sure it was interesting. Surely it was just the way I happened to pick it up. Yes, very interesting, he said, half to himself. Will you indulge me a little more? I hesitated. I really didn't want to, but I couldn't think how to extricate myself. I will make this worth your while, Abigail, I promise. OK, I said. If you were to hide something in this room, let's say a small object you wished no one to find, tell me, where would you put it? I looked around me. So where would I hide it? OK, behind the curtains? Somewhere in the wardrobes? Under the bed? No, don't be ridiculous. No, if I were to hide something, it suddenly came to me with total clarity. If I were to hide something, it would be in the dressing table. I walked over and sat down. I was aware of my eyes moving from side to side. Then without quite knowing why... I reached down to the bottom left-hand drawer and opened it. I put my hand inside and rang my fingertips along the underside of the drawer above. And there, sure enough, was a small object. It felt like it had been stuck there with tape. I scratched at it with my fingernails, peeled it back, and something dropped into my palm. I withdrew my hand, straightened up, and turned to face Mr Spurling. Well he said. I unclenched my fingers, and there was an elegant gold ring set with a large amethyst. Extraordinary, he whispered, and clasped his hands together. I had no idea that's what you would find. No idea at all. I remember it, though. Yes, she wore it the first few times we met. Her first husband must have bought it for her. She didn't want me to know she'd kept it, I suppose. How extraordinary. How very extraordinary. I stayed for a moment, frozen with my hand outstretched, unsure what to do. It's yours, said Mr Spurling. You can keep it. It's the least you deserve. Oh, no, I said. Oh, no, I thank you, but no. I turned and placed the ring on the dressing table. But I don't think you understand, he said. From the moment I first saw you, I had an inkling that you could help me. And now I know you can. Please take it. All of a sudden, his eyes were bright and shining. His face had cracked into a smile. And just for a moment, I glimpsed the man he must once have been the handsome, suave, charming man of his younger days. It is seven years since I lost to Zora. 
For seven years I have been trying to make contact, and in all that time Mrs. Beaufort has been my only hope. She came highly recommended, the best medium in the West Country, I was told. And every time we try, she tells me that Tazora is close. We sense a presence, we all do, but there has never been any real sign. Not a word, not a movement, not so much as a breath of air. But you, Abigail, you and Tazora have an affinity. It is obvious. Take the ring, Abigail. Take it as a down payment, because I am convinced that you can help me, and I am willing to pay you for it, and pay you handsomely. There was something about all this that made me recoil. I shook my head. He nudged his wheelchair towards me and looked at me very directly. Please, Abigail. You will help me, won't you? No, I'm sorry, but I don't want any part of it. I stood up took off the coat and flung it on the bed. I didn't stop running until I got to the bottom of the drive. Then I turned and saw that he was staring after me from the bedroom window. I was too far away to see the expression on his face. I felt bad about it. You couldn't help but feel sorry for him. He was a sad, lonely, crazy old man. But I didn't want to get involved... I just didn't believe in that kind of thing. Or if I'm honest, perhaps there was a little bit of me that did. But that only made it worse. And so I did my best to put him out of my mind. Spring came in a rush that year. There had been a project a while back to plant a million bulbs in the town. And now they burst upon us in a raucous cacophony of colour. Snowdrops, crocuses... Daffodils, tulips, irises, hyacinths. Every verge, every roundabout, every trough, window box and hanging basket was suddenly overwhelmed with blooms. I felt uplifted by the change of the season, the new optimism in the air. And even though I no longer had the coat, the confidence it had given me remained. I started applying for jobs, those proper jobs I'd once dreamt of. And it wasn't going so badly. I got as far as the interview stage with a few of them. One in Exeter, a couple in Bristol, one as far afield as London. An unwelcome development, though, was that I had started sleeping badly. It was something that had never been an issue before. I still lived in my parents' house, and the rhythms of my sleep were those of my childhood. My bed stood in the place where my cot once did all those years before, the morning sunlight slanted through my curtains in just the way it always had. But now, for the very first time, I found myself waking in the night with the sheets loose and twisted around my feet, my nightdress clammy. Sometimes the glass of water on the bedside table would be spilled, and often I would open my eyes with a feeling of vague, unfocused anxiety. It was as if I had forgotten a shift at work or missed a doctor's appointment or I'd turned up for an interview a day too late. And yet I had never done any of those things, not once in my life. What was it that was nagging at me? Was it something I saw in my dreams? I was one of those people who could never remember them. But I needed to get to the bottom of this, and so I started sleeping with a notebook by my bed. I promised myself to jot down anything I could recall the moment I woke up, 
but it did no good. I still awoke with the same uneasy feelings and no notion of what had caused them. Then one day, I happened to pick up the notebook and leaf through it, and much to my surprise, I found strange marks on random pages. They were often no more than a single line or a quick scribble, but they were in my own hand. I could see that. Had I done that in the night and forgotten about it? I must have. I started to check it on a more regular basis, and I started to see that certain shapes were repeated. There was a circle, a circle with a line pointing straight up from the centre. And there was a cross too, a Christian cross perhaps. I puzzled over it for a number of days before I came to the conclusion it was the letter T. The next night, I sat bolt upright in bed with an image in my head. It was a place I knew, a place from the town or close by, I was pretty sure. Where was it? It faded before I had a chance to tell. But it came again, the next night, and the next, and the next, until I suddenly got it. I knew where it was, exactly where it was. It was a bench, way out on a clifftop beyond the west end of town. I returned to the notebook and found a new mark that I hadn't noticed before. Next to the T was another letter, a U. I flipped back and looked at the circle again, and then it dawned on me that it wasn't a circle. It was a clock, a clock showing 12 o'clock. 12 o'clock T-U. Tuesday, surely. That was today. It was impossible not to go. I wasn't working until late afternoon. I had to go. I had to. Even if it was just to reassure myself I wasn't going mad. I got off the bus at the top of the hill. There would be nothing there, I told myself, as I walked through the fields towards the clifftop path. The bench was framed by an arch of trees and offered a magnificent view along the beach, a dizzying 500 feet below. As I approached, I felt a great wave of relief, because just as I had predicted, there was no one there. Of course there wasn't. There wouldn't be. I leant against a tree trunk and gazed for a moment towards the pretty white hotels along the town's esplanade a mile or so in the distance. And then I heard a whir behind me. I turned and saw the wheelchair. It was a powered one this time, fitted with all-terrain tyres. So she sent you at last, he said as he came closer. I knew she would. Mr Spurling. He came to a halt next to the bench and patted the place next to him with the flat of his palm. Please sit down. There was a knot in my stomach as I obeyed. We sat in silence for a few moments. I kept my eyes fixed on the view along the coast. I come here every Tuesday at midday, he said at last. It is the spot where Tazora and I first met. I shall tell you the story, if I may. I didn't want to hear it, but I would have to. I could see that. I was on one of my regular walks along the cliffs, he continued and she was already sitting here admiring the view, just as you are now. I always stopped at this bench for a rest, and I saw no reason why the presence of an unknown woman should change my habit. For a long time we sat here, the two of us, without exchanging a word. 
But the longer I remained, the more convinced I became that we were both thinking exactly the same thing. It was a strange feeling, something I had never experienced before. In the end, I turned to her and tried to find the words to ask if that really was the case. But there was no need to frame the question, because she looked directly at me with a kind of wonder in her eyes and said, Yes, yes we are. Yes, exactly the same thing. I won't go into the details of our romance. I was unmarried, she recently divorced. There was no impediment to our union, and the feeling that we'd first experienced on this bench was one that never left us. Indeed, as the years passed, it grew more profound, more intense. We were two creatures of a single mind, that's what we said. We always knew exactly what the other was thinking. We could anticipate each other's reactions. An insight would occur to both of us at precisely the same moment. Perhaps there are other lovers who would say that they have known something similar. But what we had was most certainly different. It was unlike anything I had ever heard or read about. It defied explanation because we found more in our shared mind than either of us had ever experienced as individuals. We discovered we had detailed knowledge of places neither of us had ever been to. We both had total recall of events that had happened many years before we were born. At first we were baffled, we couldn't account for it. But gradually we became convinced we had known each other in a previous life perhaps in several previous lives. There could be no other explanation. And then, with no warning, Tazora was diagnosed with cancer. It was a dreadful moment. They had caught it too late. It had spread throughout her body. The doctors were unanimous that there was nothing they could do. For a week we agonised, we deliberated and then we took the most painful and the worst decision of all our many lives together. I turned and looked at him for the first time. We decided to jump. What? There seemed no point in waiting. Why should she endure a ghastly, harrowing demise? Why should I persist with an existence rendered meaningless by her loss? We would do it together. We were so sure, so confident that we would meet again that any other course of action seemed absurd. And this is where you did it, I said. It had suddenly come to me. Yes. The cliff edge was not as overgrown as it is now. There was a clear drop to the rocks below. My God, I said. So what happened? He raised his chin and pursed his lips. She went straight down. My body crashed onto a tree that protruded from a ledge some way below. It didn't hold my weight, but it broke my fall. Not by much, but enough to mean I was still breathing when the rescuers found me. They winched me up to a helicopter and flew me to the Royal Devon and Exeter Hospital. It left me as I am today, shattered in body, mind and spirit.
incapable of living and, alas, incapable of dying, too. Stuck in an earthly limbo for seven long years. But it is made so much worse by my constant fears for Tazora. Is she adrift in a limbo of her own? Does she wait for me? Does she know what happened? Or is she in a state of constant anxiety? Does she fear that I betrayed her? Has she despaired and abandoned me? Is she lost to me, Abigail? Shall I ever find her again? The pain of not knowing grows worse every year. He stared out to sea for a few moments, his face taut with the strain of keeping his emotions in check. Then he resumed. When we last met Abigail, I said you had an affinity with Tezora. But now I know that it is more than that. Because it is no coincidence that we find ourselves here today. Tezora sent you, didn't she? I tried to shake my head. Well, why else would you be here? Yes, it is more than an affinity, isn't it, Abigail? You have the gift. I don't know what you mean. Of course you do. You are the one in a million, maybe the one in a hundred million who has it. The gift of reaching out into the beyond. Reaching out and maybe even bringing something back. I wanted to tell him he was talking rubbish, but he continued, I will pay you for your gift, Abigail, and pay you handsomely. No, I said. Abigail, you have a duty not to let it go to waste. No, I don't. I had started to sob. I got up and backed away from him, making my way around the bench towards the path. Abigail, he shouted sternly. If you don't help me... I stopped. I have jumped before, Abigail. I am not afraid to do the same again. No, I thought to myself. No, that's not fair. He can't do that to me. I won't let him. All my instincts told me to call his bluff, to get away. He was insane. I would close my ears to him. And so once again, I just put my head down. I put my head down and I ran. And this time I didn't look back. I was distressed for days. Had he made good on his threat? There was no talk of a suicide in the town. No word from Eleanor. I checked the local newspaper. Nothing there either. I had to assume all was okay. I would have gone on worrying, though. Except that later that week, what do you know? I got a job offer. It was nothing amazing. An admin assistant for an insurance company in Andover. But it paid a proper salary with health care and a pension plan. It was as if a warm wind had ripped through my life and blown away all thoughts of that dreadful old man. The company helped me find a flat share with a couple of other girls. I settled in. I was inducted. I got my ID card on a lanyard. And although the job was a little dull, I was happy enough. But I found that I was unsettled. I often had the sense of being watched. At first, I put it down to all the webcams in the office. I wasn't used to them. But no, it, it wasn't that. Because it was a feeling that would come upon me at odd times. 
I would be walking down the street and suddenly feel startled. I would swivel round and find nothing more than a bird gazing blankly at me from a fence. My sleep became disturbed again, and the feelings of anxiety that I had known earlier in the year returned. But this time they were more intense. I tried to put that down to homesickness. After all, I was 27 years old and I had never lived away from my parents before. But Andover was close enough that I could go home every weekend. So that couldn't quite explain it. And then the headaches began. Searing headaches that would launch themselves at me without warning at any time. I would feel as if my brain had suddenly expanded and was pressing against the inside of my skull. Were they migraines, perhaps? I told myself they might be, even though I'd never suffered from them before. But I didn't bother to go to the doctor. No, there was no point. Because deep down I knew there was nothing medical about my condition. I had stayed in touch with Eleanor, and on my weekends back home I sometimes helped her out if she was busy. Halloween fell on a Saturday that year, and so it was bound to be one of her busiest. I knew she would ask if I could work, and I told her that I would, but under no circumstances would I have anything to do with Mr Spurling. She fished a bit, of course, but I wouldn't give her my reasons. And so that day I was assigned to a corporate event at one of the big hotels along the Esplanade. Eleanor offered to give me a lift there that afternoon, as she often used to do, and we chatted pleasantly enough as we drove through the town towards the seafront. And then, quite unexpectedly, she took a turning to the right. Eleanor, what are you doing? I said. She drove on without answering. Eleanor? She took another turning, and the van started to climb the hill. Eleanor, where are we going? There has been a change of plan. No, Eleanor, I said. No, you can't do this. We reached a broad residential street and Eleanor accelerated. Look, she said, Mr Spurling has offered me an extremely large sum of money to do this and he's promised an even larger sum for you. And I know you don't want to see him, but it would be mad to refuse. No, I said. No, I have refused and I still do refuse. Oh, come on, Abby. Stop the car, I said, and let me out. Oh, for goodness sake, Abby, you know I'm right. But I was not having any of this. I rootled around in my bag for a moment and found my mobile. What are you doing, said Eleanor. I'm going to call the police. No, you're bloody not. She reached across and slapped the phone out of my hands. I was shocked. Don't be so damn stupid, she said. And then we turned the corner and there was the house. Eleanor stopped at the bottom of the drive. Look, Abby, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that, but the thing is, I need the money. And so do you. I know you do. He's just a stupid old man. All we have to do is humour him. But it's more than that, I said, and I could feel a tear rolling down my cheek. I knew now that I was trapped. The drive leading to the house was lit by two rows of flaming torches and I could see the silhouettes of four figures in a row across the porch. I knew who they would be. Mrs Carslake, her son Ryan, and Mrs Beaufort. And in the middle of them was a frail shape punched in a wheelchair. Eleanor started the car again and drove up to the house, stopping in the turning circle. Ryan came over to open my door and offered his hand to help me out, as if I was some kind of dignitary. I brushed him off and just for a moment I considered making a dash for it. Then I thought better of it. He would be quicker than me, I could tell. 
Thank you for coming, Abigail, said Mr Spurling. And then there was a strange noise. I looked up and saw a small flock of birds rise from the roof of the house. In an instant they were joined by more birds, hurtling towards them in a great wave from the woods. Another wave arrived, then another, and another, and another. Starlings, said Eleanor, getting out of the van. And suddenly, almost magically, there were thousands of them, swirling, swooping, spiralling, soaring, darting this way, that way. One moment streaking skywards, the next plummeting to earth. The beating of so many wings set up a steady hum in the air. Flapping and fluttering around us, they seemed a chaos of tiny creatures. But as they rose into the twilight sky, they became a single entity, as if controlled by a single mind. It was amazing. One moment they pulsed like a heart, then twisted into a helix and erupted into the shape of a giant mushroom. Next they folded in upon themselves, rolled, dispersed, regrouped, rolled again. It's a murmuration, said Mr Spurling, a murmuration of starlings. We all stood in silence and looked up in wonder. Tonight, said Mrs Beaufort very definitely, is the night. Then she stepped towards me and took me gently by the arm. Mrs Carslake came the other side of me and her son moved in behind. And with Mr Spurling in the lead, we made our way into the house. The drawing room was set up just as it had been the previous year, with much of the furniture pushed back against the walls and a round table in the middle. The two women escorted me to an old-fashioned carver chair and pressed me firmly into it. My tears were coming unstoppably now, rolling down my cheeks, down my neck, soaking into the collar of my dress. The room was lit by dozens of candles, an ancient floor-standing brass candelabra, a row of silver candlesticks along the mantelpiece, and tea lights flickering on the bookshelves and side tables. Mrs Beaufort took the seat to my right. Take my hand, she said in a voice that permitted no objection. And mine, said Mrs Carslake as she sat down on the other side. The remaining seats were taken by Ryan and Eleanor as Mr Spurling wheeled himself into the position directly opposite me. My head was suddenly pounding with a harsh, blinding pain that felt as if my skull was about to explode. May I have a glass of water, I said. Mrs Carslake pushed one towards me. I snatched it up, drained it, and then I don't know why I took the rim between my teeth and snapped it. What are you doing, my dear? said Mrs Carslake's voice. I crunched and felt a salty taste in my mouth. Abigail? she said again, but she sounded distant, as if speaking from another room. With a strange satisfaction, I could feel blood start to trickle down my chin. Spit it out, shouted Mrs Beaufort. She thumped me between the shoulders. I coughed the glass onto the table and jerked back in my chair. The pain in my head was worse than ever, but I had a strange, detached feeling about it, as if it was happening to someone else, not me. I looked around at the others and could feel the tendons in my neck strained and tense. Abigail, said Mr Spurling, looking deep into my eyes. I jerked again in my chair, more violently this time. Ryan, if you please, said Mrs Beaufort. 
Ryan got up from his seat and approached me with a roll of duct tape. Hold her, Mrs. Carslake, said Mrs. Beaufort. I struggled, but she already had my hand, and I felt Ryan's muscular grip at my elbow while he taped my wrist to the arm of the chair, winding it around a number of times before bending forward and tearing the tape with his teeth. Throughout the whole process, I had been trying to wriggle free from Mrs. Beaufort's grip as well, but she was holding me firmly with both hands. There was no getting away. Ryan repeated his trick with the tape, and I was their prisoner. I spat another great mouthful of blood onto the table. We are ready, Mr. Spurling, I heard Mrs. Beaufort's voice say. Very well, then. Proceed. I could feel the two women tighten their grip on my hands. I closed my eyes and Mrs. Carslate began to mutter, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow. I started to rock from side to side, tossing my hair this way and that. Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler. I sucked the blood through my teeth and spat again. He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. Come to Zora, came Mrs. Beaufort's voice. Come! Come, my love, echoed Mr. Spurling. Please, my love, come! The pressure in my head was immense. It was beyond pain. It was as if I was about to disintegrate entirely. The noises in the room became muffled and distant. My body lurched forward, my head jerked backwards again. And then the first of the voices came to me. It was a language I had no knowledge of. I could feel my airway constrict in a way it never had before. As the sentence came out, my tongue repeatedly flicked the back of my teeth and I knew I sounded strangely shrill and angry. Then another sentence came, in another language. It was a male voice this time which vibrated in my chest and rasped the back of my throat. Whatever it was I said came out with a sudden guttural rush. I opened my eyes and realised that the others were looking at me with concern. But I was only dimly aware because another voice was coming. No, not one but several of them. Too many for me to articulate. I was starting to choke. I was becoming overwhelmed. I spat out another mouthful of blood. I was writhing in my chair now, this way, that way, smashing my head again and again on the backrest. And then the images arrived. There was a warping, a bending of my field of vision. I had the sense that I was looking at a membrane, a bulging membrane about to burst. It throbbed towards me and then back again, throbbed again, and I started to see faces. I wasn't sure how many. They dissolved and then it throbbed once more. They started coming into focus, at first just a few of them. A woman in a headscarf, an emaciated man, a child with solemn eyes. It throbbed again and there were more, suddenly many, many more. And now I was looking at a chain-link fence with faces, faces, faces pressed up hard against the other side. A pretty young woman, an old man on crutches, a soldier with a cut above his eye. The fence stretched into the far distance. European faces, Asian, African, they were from every corner of the earth. There were more of them than I could comprehend. From somewhere I could hear Mr. Spurling's voice. Is she there, Abigail? Can you see her? I scanned the sea of faces before me. Some were well-fed, comfortable, even dressed in business suits. Some barefoot, starving, dressed in rags. 
Who were these people? They gazed back at me silently, impassively. Come, boomed Mrs Beaufort's voice. Come to Zora. And then a figure started to climb the fence. It had the lithe, nimble movements of a young man. He made it almost to the top, but the fence was high and it started to sway alarmingly. Just for an instant, he hesitated and his momentum was gone. He lost his grip and tumbled backwards into the crowd below. A low moan went up from a thousand voices. An older man pushed his way through the crowd towards me. He pressed his weather-beaten face against the fence and stared at me with his fierce eyes. I saw a flicker of recognition in them and then astonishment. He turned and shouted something to the people around him in a language I didn't understand. There was a swell of excitement all around. He pointed at me and repeated his words in a triumphant shout. I didn't need a translator to get the gist. She has the gift, he was saying. She has the gift. Immediately, people started to push past him and climb the fence. Some made it no further than a few feet off the ground. Others repeated the experience of the first climber, making it almost to the top and then falling backwards. But the strain on the fence was beginning to tell. A few of the links at the top pinged apart. I backed away. They were swarming up the fence now, causing it to sag backwards, and as more and more of them hung off it, the upper part began to split. There was a vast collective gasp, and then it ripped apart from top to bottom like a seam. They poured through the breach. Men, women, children, hundreds of them running towards me, waving their arms, wild-eyed, screaming, desperate for my attention. Do you see her? came Mr Spurling's voice from somewhere. Abigail, do you see her? But it was at that point that I think I must have lost consciousness. I don't know for how long. Probably no more than a few seconds, but I do remember that I was awoken by the sound of the doorbell. I looked around the table at the others. The doorbell rang again. They may be trick-or-treaters, said Eleanor. Shall I go and deal with them? Please, said Mrs Carslake. I shut my eyes. There was silence, apart from my own breathing, which was coming in short, rapid gulps. Then I heard a shout from Eleanor out in the hallway and opened my eyes to see a little girl run into the room. An elfin-faced little girl, no more than seven or eight years old. She looked from one of us to the next, as if she thought she might know someone. Meanwhile, Mr Spurling manoeuvred his wheelchair backwards from the table to get a better look. He turned to face her and they gazed directly at one another. I saw a smile slowly spread across the little girl's features. Mr Spurling leant forwards towards her. He attempted to say something, but the words wouldn't come. The girl stood transfixed. Mr Spurling leant further forward, tried again to speak and then suddenly toppled. He pitched headfirst onto the floor with a sickening thud. The others sprang from their seats. Mrs Carslake and Ryan rolled him onto his back and I glimpsed his head, lolling horribly sideways. His smashed spectacles, the blood smeared across his face. Someone call an ambulance, shouted Mrs Beaufort. There was nothing I could do. 
I was still taped to the arms of the chair, but I twisted my neck and looked over my shoulder, out through the open drawing room door and out through the open front door beyond. And I swear to you, I saw that elfin-faced little girl run down the drive hand in hand with a little boy of almost exactly the same age. There was something joyous, something triumphant in the way they laughed together. And something familiar too, almost as if they had known one another forever. A Gift for Halloween was written by Elgin Barrett and performed by Katie Cotterall. Technical presentation was by Malcolm Blackmore and music by John Woz. (laughs) 